these are our highly sensitive children. As long as we create an environment, structure, time for transitions for them, they can be those wise, creative, gifted, yes, not in the IQ sense necessarily, but gifted children who will help us save our world. Welcome to Tilled Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. If your child seems to be extra impacted by things, whether it's light, noise, pain, or even other people's emotions, he or she might be highly sensitive. High sensitivity is a genetic trait that affects up to 20% of the population and is often misunderstood and mistaken for other differences and disorders. What makes it difficult is that when unrecognized and unsupported, highly sensitive children and adults tend to exhibit high levels of anxiety, nervousness, perfectionism, overwhelm, and emotional outbursts due to their finely tuned nervous systems. But this sensitivity can also be a rich and valuable way to experience the world. My guest today is Elaine Friend, a licensed family therapist and international consultant on high sensitivity and a highly sensitive person herself. In this episode, Elaine explains to us what high sensitivity is, how it shows up in children, teens, and adults, and gives her insights on how parents can help their highly sensitive kids flourish. And now here is my conversation with Elaine. Hello, Elaine. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I'm excited about this conversation as we were just talking before I hit record. This is a new topic, more than 200 episodes in, and I always get very excited when I can bring yet another new topic to the show. So can you just, before we get into the meat of our conversation, just take a few minutes to introduce yourself, kind of who you are in the world, and if you can tie in with that your personal why for doing this work, that would be awesome. Sure, I'd love to. So I'm Elaine Friend, and I'm out in California, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist there. And mostly in my therapy practice, I focus on working with families and highly sensitive people. And especially I'm interested in that 20% of the population, especially the children who have the trait of high sensitivity. And I know we'll dig a lot more into that. I'm highly sensitive. I have a highly sensitive young adult child. I'm married to a highly sensitive person. My parents are highly sensitive. Anyway, you get the picture. (laughs) We're a sensitive family. (laughs) uh, I grew up my whole life being told I was just too sensitive. Come on, get over it. Buck up. Why are you always crying? Why do you have such strong reactions to everything? And, you know, I think that's probably one of the reasons that I became a therapist. I also got into Al-Anon, and I've been in Al-Anon for more than 30 years and in the mental health industry for more than 30 years. So I got a lot of tools for living my life, but it wasn't until almost a decade ago that my friend at the barn, I'm a horsewoman, I love horses and have several and practice equine-assisted psychotherapy here in California, but my friend at the barn Another therapist came up to me and said, Elaine, you're highly sensitive, and I think your equine-assisted therapy work would be so fantastic for highly sensitive people. The reason being they love nature and they love animals, and we had talked a lot about my practice and my equine-assisted therapy, and 
But I thought, why are you telling me I'm highly sensitive? I've been hearing that my whole life. I really don't need to hear it from you. I thought we were friends. And she said, she said, well, have you ever read the book? And I said, no. She said, well, why don't you look it up? Well, it turns out that my friend who was telling me I was highly sensitive was Elaine Aaron, and she's literally the author of the term highly sensitive person and a number of books on the topic that have sold over 2 million copies internationally. (laughs) And um, I wanted to say for your podcast, her new book just came out this month, and it's called The Highly Sensitive Parent. And I can't recommend Mm. it highly enough for your listeners, you know, because we're all parenting together, right? Awesome. So, you know, I, I went out, read about it. Ah, the light went on, and I hope I can turn the light on for a lot of folks in your audience, although I bet a lot of you know about the trait of high sensitivity already. So, okay, awesome introduction, and um, I love how this was kind of the work that you were doing or who you were, and that you had that serendipitous relationship that took your work to a new level and connected all those dots for you. That's so cool. So, let's actually start then with defining a highly sensitive person. I will say that I've known for many years what sensory processing disorder was, and I know this is something completely separate, but when I first heard this term highly sensitive, I didn't recognize that there was a difference. I was living abroad and I had met a friend who described herself and her son as being highly sensitive people. And as I started tilt parenting, she's like, is this part of your work? And I I was like, I I don't actually know. I'm not that familiar with what you're talking about. So could you explain what it means to be highly sensitive? And, you know, maybe as part of that, explain how it is different from sensory processing disorder or integration issues. Yes, indeed. And it is confusing. In fact, the actual scientific name for this innate trait, so it's a trait that people are born with, uh, it's not something you develop over time at all, but the actual scientific name is sensory processing sensitivity. And it's unfortunate, that name. We wish it hadn't happened that way. And it just, you know, science, especially psychological science evolves in a certain way. And it is confusing because it's so similar to sensory processing disorder. One of the main differences is that the trait is just a personality trait. It's not actually a disorder. In fact, there are very, very few disadvantages to being highly sensitive. One of the main ones is that highly sensitive people can get mislabeled and misdiagnosed with disorders and mental illnesses. So this trait is something, as I mentioned, that you're born with. It occurs in equally across gender and sex, so male and female, men and women, boys and girls, equally, even though it's easier to see girls as being highly sensitive because we're more likely to emote and um, be stronger in expressing our emotions. But the boys who are more who are highly sensitive, when they're young, they may be really intense, which is another temperament. And so you might see their sensitivity, but a lot of boys and especially men learn to hide it. They become more reserved or quiet. They learn not to cry in public and crying easily is a trademark of uh, many highly sensitive people. Here's another really interesting thing. People usually assume if you're highly sensitive, you're introverted. And while 70% of highly sensitive people and children are more introverted, 30% are extroverted. 
So it's interesting to be thinking about the fact that there can be as many different ways to be highly sensitive or to have this trait as there are people who have it. And, you know, based on the growth of world population, there's almost 1.6 billion highly sensitive people in the world. Okay, so I know, Debbie, part of your question is, how do we recognize it? How do we identify sensitivity in our children? We have four main characteristics, and there is an acronym for it, and the acronym is D-O-E-S, DOES. So the first one is depth of processing. People with this trait have a more reactive brain. It's been documented with functional MRI studies that certain parts of our brains are more active in situations, especially those involving emotional content. But it means that we think about things more deeply. I have a nice blog. Maybe we can include a link to it in the show notes called Finely Tuned. It's very brief. And I wrote about youth with high sensitivity. They might be the ones who become perfectionists and have a really hard time producing that paper or that book report for school. They also can be the, the young people who become very passionate about something. When I was a child, I'm older, but when I was a child, my thing was picking up litter. Gosh, did litter bugs make me angry. And I grew up in Oklahoma where there was a commercial with Native American man and someone drives by, he's standing near the highway and somebody drives by and throws out a bag of fast food trash. And then they flash to his face up close and there's a tear running down his face. I could cry right now thinking about how much that commercial touched me. Mm. And it changed my life. You know, I, I still to this day think about what is trash doing to the wildlife or to the oceans. You know, I'm that's a, a really deep processing for somebody who's seven years old. A lot of teens who are highly sensitive might get very involved in a political issue or environmentalism. They just think a lot. At the same time, they may be really bothered by their peers. Again, they think a lot. Now, one more classic D, deep processing example, is that, and I bet many of your listeners can relate to this, you take your child to the first day of preschool or kindergarten, and many of the children run in and start playing right away. But this child, this sensitive child, stops in the doorway and pauses. And the teacher might say, oh, is he shy? And the parent would say, no, he's not shy. He likes to get the lay of the land before he dives in. So the child is standing in the doorway seeing what toys are where, which children are where, and maybe they're smelling something cooking in the kitchen and wondering, what is that smell? And they don't just say, oh, something's cooking in their heads. They say, is it sweet? Is it lunch? Am I going to get to have some? Are we cooking today? Oh, is that chocolate I smell? Or maybe butter? Maybe it's chicken soup. They have to think about everything. And it makes things a little slower when you spend all your time deep processing. Mm -hmm. So can you think of something, Debbie, that you've noticed a sensitive person processing? Well, I just, you know, even as you're you're just I feel like you're describing so much of what I see uh in my child um and there seems to be so much overlap with what I hear about gifted, you know, from gifted kids and gifted people and just feeling things so deeply. I I remember um a friend of mine, her son, I think 
lost a couple nights sleep when he was really little because he had stepped on a caterpillar and and killed that caterpillar. I mean, he just was despondent about that. So what you're saying makes sense. And, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this later, maybe I'm I'm jumping the gun, but so many of the traits that you just described, the depth of processing, thinking about things in a much more deeper level, um, that perfectionism, that also is something that is such a trait of gifted kids. And so I imagine that a lot of gifted kids are highly sensitive. Is that how that works? I imagine that too. And we don't really have the research yet. But if a gifted child, I have seen many highly sensitive children who are gifted and many gifted children who are highly sensitive in my work. What the research is not showing, what we haven't researched is IQ. We don't want to say, you know, gifted inherently relates to IQ as well as these other things. And IQ is not statistically linked to high sensitivity. So a gifted child who has these four characteristics, and we've just gone over the first one, most likely has the trait. And like I said, I have seen a lot of correlation. I I know they exist, but I haven't seen that many gifted children who are not highly sensitive, just anecdotally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of my qualifications and certifications, if you will, is that I'm an international consultant on high sensitivity. And we're a group of professionals working in the field who have been trained and certified in the research and the science by Elaine Aaron. And we're committed to really making sure that scientific evidence is put out there and that everything that we teach and say is based in the research. And the reason for this is, I digress, but please go with me for a moment. It's so critical that pediatricians and teachers and school professionals of other sorts, psychotherapists, mental health professionals, just basically everyone who has power over a child needs to be able to recognize that this trait is real and it's well-researched and it is truly well-researched. It's been found in the research for over a hundred years. It was just called different things. And so we want to be sure that when we're talking about sensitivity, we're not going into anything woo-woo. You know that that word, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a California technical term. <laughs> we want to be sure that we're always basing um, what we're saying in the facts. So that's why I have to say the research around giftedness isn't there. But I'm sure your listeners will, and everyone with a gifted child will be able to recognize whether that child is highly sensitive mm-hmm, or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on then. What does the O in DOES stand for? Well, O is the one thing in high, the highly sensitive trait that most highly sensitive people just don't like. That really, I will, I would go so far as to say that I just absolutely hate it, and it stands for over arousal. Now that's a psychological term. It could also be called overstimulation or overwhelm. And what it means is when you do all that thinking or you do one of the E or S things, which E is emotional reactivity and empathy and S is sensitivity to subtle stimuli. We notice every little thing. When a highly sensitive person goes out in the world into a loud, noisy, bright, in some way, whatever triggers you, overwhelming environment, we're much more likely to become over-aroused. Our heart rate goes up, our muscle tension, our breathing becomes shallow, we become distracted, and it can very easily ramp up into 
low-level or even high-level anxiety. So O is also, for me, you know, I've been spending a lot of time on the screens since we're doing social distancing and working from home now. I'm doing most of my work on Zoom or something similar on the computer, and I'm overstimulated just from having the camera on me all the time and being able to see myself on the screen and holding my attention. You know, even in person as a therapist, when I'm working in person, I sometimes I might close my eyes or look around the room, but the the pressure to look at the screen and, oh, my, my clients, my young clients who are spending some schools, you know, are making the children, especially the teenagers, stay on the screen with their camera on the whole school day, a traditional school. Hmm. And I I guess I want to give kudos to those teachers who are working so hard in those schools who are working so hard to keep education going to the child and the students. But for the highly sensitive child to be staring at the screen six hours a day, is there's just pretty much nothing worse for them. Hmm. And Already, school was probably overstimulating for most highly sensitive children. So, most of us say that this is the one negative aspect. Um, you know, I mentioned before being misdiagnosed as sort of from the parent and the caregiver perspective, but from the highly sensitive child, oh, actually, parents, I know that your highly sensitive child, if you have one, becoming overstimulated is one of the hardest things in your life. Mm-hmm. And people ask me all the time, what do you do when they're having a meltdown? And I think this is true for many different reasons that these meltdowns happen. And you will all know that once the meltdown has happened, there is very little that you can do. And with a highly sensitive child, once overstimulated, you can't teach them, give them a consequence, punish them. No one can learn in over arousal or overstimulation because the brain starts to shut off and goes into fight or flight. So, your whole whatever has been happening is pretty much lost when that happens. So what do you do about overstimulation as a parent? You prevent it. And we'll get into that a little bit later. I think I'll move on to E, Mm -hmm. which is emotional reactivity and empathy. So there's two sides to this. And I already mentioned about the brain research that we have strong, really strong reactions, emotional reactions. And Even just looking at pictures of happy or sad content, a person with a highly sensitive brain will have a much stronger brain activation. The good news is, lest you think we're always sad, we actually have a positive, a stronger positive reaction to the happy images, which I found really fascinating. Empathy is a really important differential diagnosis category or or characteristic of highly sensitive children and adults. We seek relationships. We don't want to be at the party usually because it's overstimulating. And even the extroverted HSPs, they want to go to the party, but they're done a lot sooner than the average person is. But highly sensitive people tend to love deep relationships. They really care about the underdog. And I always say this, so forgive me if you've heard me on a different interview saying this. I have to say it as many times as I can. That does not mean they have empathy toward their siblings, especially younger siblings. The highly sensitive child generally finds their siblings overstimulating. All right, think about it. If you're a highly sensitive adult, 
one of the questions on the questionnaire, which you can take on the website, hsperson.com, one of the questions is, I need to uh, retire to a dark, quiet place at the end of a busy day. Now, we know that's good for everybody, just like meditation is good for everybody, but a highly sensitive person needs it. So, a highly sensitive child living in a home with other people, be they sensitive or not, will find that pretty overstimulating. So, I'm sorry the empathy doesn't come in there, but they probably have empathy for the planet or for animals. I remember even at two and a half, my highly sensitive son was the one child in the preschool, a small preschool for younger um, two to three-year-olds. He held the preschool teacher's six-month-old baby in his lap much of the time at school and was so kind and gentle. A two-and-a-half-year-old boy, you all, that's not mm. normal, right? But for a highly sensitive <laughs> child, it really can be. Okay, so empathy, deep relationships. And on to S, I mentioned it briefly, sensitivity to subtle stimuli. So a highly sensitive child is the one who noticed that you redid your highlights or you got a new shirt. A highly sensitive person will be the person who walks into a room and sees right away, child or adult, that the blinds need to be tipped the other way because the light is shining in somebody's eyes or that if a window were cracked, the temperature would be much more comfortable. It's just that noticing of every little thing. And people often ask with all that empathy and all that noticing, are these highly sensitive children psychic? There's no research on that at all. But people ask me about the therapy horses all the time because it seems like they can read your mind too. And here's what I say. I don't think it matters. What matters is we are so good at noticing and so good at feeling that we might as well be psychic. Because it's very different than the other 80% of the population. So it seems sometimes weird to the 80%ers that the highly sensitive child seems to notice every time you're off. You know, it's really hard as a parent because you never get a minute to fake it because they know. They notice every little thing. Maybe it's just the tension around your eyes, you know. So D-O-E-S, think about your child for a moment or yourself If all four of these characteristics are present, then likely you're looking at high sensitivity. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. 
That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites? turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. So as you're describing those, and thank you for walking us through that, it's super interesting to me. And and I love having this now framework. It feels to me that this would be exhausting. Like, I, you know, as you're talking about this, especially once you got to the last point of being sensitive to subtle stimuli, that these kids are in some ways kind of like open vessels, you know, and just receiving so much. And that sounds really tiring. It is. It's so tiring. <laughs> I, I, probably at the end of every day, people in my household can hear me say, I'm so tired. And the reason is that I don't take care of myself. Now, you're leading me to this little mini book that I'm writing called The Highly Sensitive Person's Five to Thrive, the HSP Five to Thrive. And There are five things that a sensitive child or adult needs in order to thrive in this world, in order not to be in tears and exhausted at the end of the day. And I want to tell you that if your child right now, all the highly sensitive children of the world might be overstimulated at home, but basically they're having a better experience, most likely, especially if you don't let them have exposure to the news. And I know it's hard with the teenagers, but highly sensitive teens, you can explain to them how it impacts their brain. And many times they will agree. Although, oh, I'm digressing again. I apologize, but I've got a lot to say. (laughs) The teenagers, highly sensitive teenagers, they look less sensitive because they also have their hormones driving them to risk-taking. So it's a sort of a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake for sensitive teenagers. Mm -hmm. So Parents with teens, you can reach out to me and I can help you figure it out if you feel confused by how adolescence has changed your child. But the five to thrive, the first one is to know you have the trait and believe it's real. So I hope with DOES, we have accomplished that. Mm -hmm. You're able to identify whether the trait exists or not. Once you do, you have to believe it. And the way you can do that is read one of Elaine Aaron's books. It will really, really, really help you find the validation to think it's not just this you know, this kid should just get over it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
The second one is to reframe your childhood in light of the fact that you have the trait. Now, since we're talking to parents about children, I'll put this in child terms. Every single day, we need to help the child reframe their experiences in light of the fact that they have more empathy, stronger emotions, and a more reactive brain. So here's an example. The kids on the yard at recess were only playing a really aggressive game of soccer and your child didn't want to and no one would leave the soccer game and play with them. And what your child wanted to do was pick up all the different colors of fall leaves that they could find on the on the playground. Or if it was me, she wanted to sit in the shade and read her book, but she would have maybe liked not to be alone. So you reframe that. Yes, everybody's different. Different children have different kinds of brains and different kinds of interests. And the way you are is wonderful and the way they are is wonderful. The third HSP5 to thrive is heal from past trauma. But for children, and some children do need to heal from past trauma, and there are many good ways to do that. Most of them involve a qualified therapist. However, if you seek a therapist, which I strongly recommend, it's very important that you have a therapist who is open to learning about or understanding the trait of high sensitivity if your child is highly sensitive. Otherwise, they will become diagnosed with something that they may or may not have. And it's uh, there are talking points in the back of the highly sensitive child, things that you can say to teachers and therapists to help you identify whether someone would be willing to consider this. Because here's the sad thing. I have two master's degrees, one in school counseling, one in clinical psychology. I was never taught word one about temperament or about trait, about the trait of high sensitivity in particular. Never told about it. And I'm out there in the world trying to educate every therapist and every school I can about it, but I need your help, parents. So healing from past trauma also involves for children preventing trauma. So when something happens that you think might be traumatizing to your child or teen, right then and there, talk about it and let them act out what happened. Some Somehow they got an owie and it was really scary. They fell off their trike and really bloodied up their knee. It was their first really big bloody owie, as I call them. So right then and there, instead of saying, oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're going to be fine. This is going to numb. It'll sting at first and then you won't feel it. You're going to be good. Instead, you might say, wow, that was really scary. What was that like? And let them talk it through a little bit. And then you prevent a trauma reaction. It's it's, uh, quite amazing how we can prevent trauma. But highly sensitive children do react to trauma in a stronger way than those who are not highly sensitive. You can imagine they have stronger emotional reactions and a more reactive brain. The fourth is, I'm going to keep this one fourth. This is the most important one for how exhausting it is. We have to design a life compatible for be- with being highly sensitive. I'm going to run over the fifth and come back to the fourth. The fifth one is to know other highly sensitive people and other highly sensitive children. It's very important that highly sensitive children know adults and children who are highly sensitive. It isn't hard. It's one out of five people. In fact, we're now thinking it could be as high as one out of four. Hmm. So the they need to have friends with both children who are highly sensitive and children who are not highly sensitive so that they can learn to interact 
with the different kinds. And to plan a play date or an event, even for a 15-year-old, you might invite, not during the pandemic, but in normal life, you might invite your highly sensitive teens, highly sensitive friend to go see a documentary or some kind of movie that engages them or to go to a jazz concert or a folk singer concert or a quiet restaurant, something that is HSP friendly. For the kids, you know, making cookies together, just you, your child, and one other child, that's a great play date. Now, when the the child who is not sensitive comes over, the highly sensitive child probably has toys that are really special and precious to her. And if that's the case, those toys might get put away. With the child, you say, you know, so-and-so is coming over and sometimes they play a lot more rambunctiously or sometimes you don't like to share these toys. So why don't we decide which special toys we're going to put up and decide ahead of time with the child what would be three options of things that they would like to do with the child who is not, the play date who's not highly sensitive. So can you see how if you did this, you would prevent the meltdown and exhaustion or at least lessen the probability of it from just a play date? Yeah, absolutely. It's knowing knowing who your your child is and doing that proactive problem solving makes total sense. I mean, that's good parenting regardless of how your child might be diverse. And I come from the bias that all children have some level of diversity that makes them unique mm-hmm. and that we parents need to identify it, know what it is and help them work with it. That's you know, there are nine temperaments in the in you know most psychological models, we consider nine temperaments, and everybody's different on them. And sort of knowing your child's temperament and identifying the temperament of people they spend a lot of time with, both in your family and among the friends, can really help you learn and help your child learn to accept and honor the differences while still taking care of their own temperaments. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. 
That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Okay, so one more thing about exhaustion. Often it is said that highly sensitive children are bad at transitions. And probably many people with children who are some way neurodiverse have an experience of transitions being challenging. There are different reasons. For the highly sensitive child, transitions are not challenging at all. They are not, I promise you. The issue is that they're deep processing and that takes a lot of time. Oh my gosh. It can be so aggravating when you're trying to get out of the house and you walk into the bedroom and you find your nine-year-old still hasn't dressed and is reading a book or doing something, involved in something that has nothing to do with leaving the house. So it takes so long. In fact, as an adult, I like to plan to be thinking about leaving the house an hour and a half before it's time to go. Then if I have to change outfits a few times because I'm processing what I'm doing, I have plenty of time for it. You know, the the adult concerns and the child concerns are not all that different. Mm -hmm. So when we, you know, you have your young child at the park and it's going to be time to leave, this is a good tool for many different neurodiverse children. For highly sensitive children, it's absolutely imperative. We're leaving in 20 minutes. Where you have 10 more minutes, what would you like to do at that time? You know, the countdown that is a very long countdown, whereas most parents can say, we're going to go in five minutes and then 30 seconds before, okay, it's time to go, head on over, pack up your your snack. Uh, This does not work with the highly Mm -hmm. sensitive child because they have to think about every little thing. So when you design a life, back to the five to thrive, that's compatible with your family's sensitivity and all their different temperaments, then you... Okay, well, it's kind of sad, really, because you can't do as much as you want to do if you're a go-getter or a high sensation seeker like myself. I want my kid to get to do every single sport, every single enrichment class, and I want to do them all as well. I can't. That's when I end my day saying, I'm so tired, and having an adult version of the meltdown. Hmm. Super interesting. Thank you so much for walking us through the five to thrive. Our listeners are getting so much value. These are all such tangible ideas to contemplate if you have these kids. And I'm looking forward to I know you said before we started recording, you said you have a book coming out about this in 2021. So we'll look forward to sharing that. Now, the highly sensitive teen, the teens are the least understood and the most needy, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of, of understanding. Yeah. Teens are complicated, even in the best of circumstances, right? So true. <laughs> Spoken as mothers of teens. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I, before we say goodbye, I just wanted to touch upon one last thing. You've mentioned a couple times this idea of acceptance, and it's important to find a therapist or who understands and accepts that this is a real thing for many different types of neurodivergence, you know, ADHD even is something that 
even though there's a lot of science behind it, there's a there are still myths out there that it's just, it's not a real thing. And, and so oftentimes, we find ourselves kind of fighting against systems to show that actually, this is what's happening with my child. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts for parents who are coming up against that kind of pushback of not accepting people, you know, that they're trying to get on their side or to advocate for change or for accommodations that they're getting pushback. Any thoughts on how parents can advocate for their kids and for a better understanding of highly sensitive people? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put, if there's room in the show notes, I'd love to put a few talking points, but if not, you can reach out to me. Here's the thing that's so important. This is a trait that is found in over a hundred species. We think it may be in every species. Why? It gives an evolutionary advantage. We need one out of five people, one out of five dogs, one out of five horses, one out of five cheetahs, one out of five fish even, that are more likely to sit back and watch and look for danger, notice it when it's coming, and encourage the herd, the tribe, the school, the family to go to safety. We have wildfires every summer and fall now in California, and it's the highly sensitive people who smell the smoke first and alert everyone that needs to know that there's fire. So when when we're talking about this trait, most people, you know, who the, I think some of the hardest ones are the grandparents that, you know, that are around the children and mm-hmm. like, why can you not control your child? What, where are the manners in this child? And we have to really give them the opportunity to understand it. And I can't recommend highly enough reading um, The Highly Sensitive Child or Ted Zeff's book, Strong Sensitive Boy. I read both those books about my child and uh, for my child, and I found myself in them. So I think when we really are able to point out that the research backs it, you know, you mentioned seeing my Google talk, Debbie, and I encourage people to go look up Elaine Friend um, Talks at Google and watch it because I go in just a very brief overview of the research to help to help people be able to talk about it more. Mm -hmm. But the advantages, so I'll give you this one image. Think about a tribe, an early tribe of people. It could be on any continent. And you have the the main uh, group of the, the village, the tribe, the clan living together. And then you have the shaman or the healer or the priest who lives in a hut about a quarter mile away and across the creek. And this person can give such wisdom and advice. They can create amazing concoctions or ceremonies. They advise the chief and help the chief decide when to uh, win and whether to battle other people and help the chief remember that there will be losses. They provide marriage counseling and they help heal the children. They study herbs The reason they can do all these things for the tribe is because they have that hut that they go to and they rest and they relax and they meditate and they read and they spend time in nature alone. And when they do that, then they are the shining stars. They can't do everything. They're not swinging their sword in battle, but they are whispering wisdom in the chieftain's ear. 
and these are our highly sensitive children, as long as we create an environment, structure, time for transitions for them, they can be those wise, creative, gifted, yes, not in the IQ sense necessarily, but gifted children who will help us save our world. There's nothing more important. I love that reframe. And that's just mirrors so much of what I talk about with just neurodivergence in general, that I do see these different ways of being wired as evolutionary advantages and our kids, these nonconformists, these kids who see the world differently are so critical. So I love that you ended with that reframe. And before we say goodbye, um, you've already mentioned so many great resources, but anywhere else that parents can interact with you and just tell us where people can find you. Absolutely. I'm really, really excited that I have a new webinar series and it's live question and answer about all things highly sensitive once a month on general adult sensitivity and general sensitivity questions and once a month on parenting sensitivity. And you can find me and my webinar at areyouhighlysensitive.com. Written out all the words, no punctuation, areyouhighlysensitive.com. And I'm going to offer everyone who hears this podcast 50% off for the first month. It's normally only $37. And that amount just pays for the webinar, not me. Um, And for half off, you can join with the discount code TILT, T-I-L-T, all caps. And... I would love to see you there. You can also reach out for consultation. I give everybody a, a complimentary 15-minute phone call and uh, also do coaching even across state lines around sensitivity. And my main website for that is my name, elainefriend.com. So I'd love to see you in either of those places. And please let me know how I can help you. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you so much for the special tilt discount. That's awesome. And listeners, I will have links again to that in the show notes page, along with the discount code tilt easy to remember. But thank you. That's so generous. And thank you for just sharing with us today. I had so many questions and you shared so much. I didn't even have to ask most of them because you just covered so much in in what you talked about. But so many wonderful takeaways. And definitely, I think it's going to have many of us just looking at our kids a little differently. So thank you so much for that. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And I wish we could talk for three hours because I'm a highly sensitive person and I'm thinking deeply. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. 
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.